right, good morning, familia. How's everyone doing? You look good. You look good over there in the east as well. I want to welcome you all to Wheaton Bible Church. If you're new uh, to the church or visiting for the first time, my name is Hannibal, one of the pastors here. And I think this is a great season for us to be part of the church because we are going through this journey um, uh, through the Bible, uh, a journey that we have called The Greatest Story, The Story of God and His Bride, in which we're looking at different passages and events uh, in the narrative of the scriptures that points us to the reality that the Bible is just one single story, which I could say is the greatest story ever told. And, and scholars call this the redemption story. And in this story, as you, if you have been with us, is, uh, this story is divided into four different sections, if you will. You got the creation section in which God shows us the picture of his original design for everything that he created. And you got the fall section in which we see how sin entered the world and actually ruined everything beautiful that God had created. But because our God is a God that is unstoppable, he, there's also a section called the redemption section in which we see Jesus and what he came, came to do and how is it that he is going to um, kind of reconstruct and, and restore everything that is broken. But then we got the last section, which I've always found that to be the best section, the most beautiful section of the entire Bible, which shows what Jesus is going to do once he comes back. And everything is made new again, right? Um, so it's creation for redemption and restoration. And it doesn't matter what part of the Bible you choose and what part you could always find yourself in one of those four different sections. It's a really healthy way, at least for me, to read the Bible. Now, we have already talked about the creation section. For the last two weeks, we have been talking about, we started talking about the, the, the fall section when, when sin enters the world. Um, and if you were here last week, we talked a little bit about the story of Noah. I didn't give you the whole story because I didn't have the time for that. Nobody has the time to do that in one sermon, right? But that story is known as the flood. And if you remember, we talked about a little bit, uh, I gave you a brief description once again about what sin is. And I said that sin is dangerous and destructive and disfigured things and it's contagious and progressive, right? And there's a reason why, at least as Christians, we don't take our sin for granted because we know that it's a dangerous thing. Uh, but the beautiful thing about the story of Noah, though, is that not only he paints this picture of what humanity has become because of sin, but it also paints this beautiful picture of a God that stops at nothing. That even though things are terribly wrong, he stops at nothing. That he, his plans and purposes for this creation cannot be stopped by anything at all. And he gives Noah and his family, after he rescues them, the same mandate that he gave to Adam and Eve. Which was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, just by looking at that story, just by looking at the narrative of the Bible, there is one verse that I think is important for us to keep in mind. One verse. Actually, I, I could honestly say that this is probably my, my favorite verse in the Bible. And I know that I've said that 20,000 times, but this time it's true. Or more true. And I'm going to give you the, the version of this verse that, that comes from the NLT, the New Living Translation. Because I think that it makes it so simple and clear. This is Job 42.2. And it says, this is Job talking about God in the midst of his pain and his struggle. He says, I know that you can do anything, he says to God. I know that you can do anything and that no one can stop you. That's a crazy good verse. 
I know that you can do anything you want to do and that no one can stop you. Actually, I, I think that this is the way we can read the Bible. We, we can see why is it that when sin entered the world, God did not stop his plans. Why is it that he promised a savior? Why is it that then in the story of Noah, he did what he did and then he rescued Noah and his family because God could do whatever he wants to do and nothing or no one can stop him. He will accomplish always his purposes. And it is with that verse in mind, actually with that theme in mind, that I want us to approach the text we read today. Actually, two stories that seem to be two different stories, but that at the end of the day, they are connected. Actually, they are inseparable. That if you really want to understand what happened at the Tower of Babel, which is the story, the first story we read, not only you need to understand that, but you got to see how is it that that is connected to the story of Abraham, or at least the beginning of the story of Abraham. So these are the three points that we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the great tower, the great nation, and the great savior. The great tower, the great nation, and the great savior. So I need you to do me a favor. Look at the person next to you. Whether you're here in the west or in the east, look at the person next to you and says, say, say something like this. God will, st- will not stop at anything. Oh, no, let me put it this way. More biblical. God cannot be stopped. Go ahead. All right. Come back over here. Point number one, the great tower. Um, you would think that after the flood and how everything went south, if you will, and how much people died and suffered, you would think that things would change, right? You would think that as human beings, we would get the message. You know, that's why I have an issue when people say, well, if you would only tell me, I would change. And I'm like, no, that's not how it works. Our issue is more profound. I've used this example 20,000 times, and I'm completely going off the script, so I hope I stick to my time. If that would be true, this is the example, the classic example, Hannibal's example, all right? If that would be true, we will not eat junk food. If information will be enough, we will not eat junk food. Every single junk food we eat, there is somewhere in a piece of paper saying something like, if you eat this, you will die. But because that stuff is delicious, man, we still eat it. Because information is not enough, the problem is more profound. I think that that's the way we got to see humanity and we got to see each other. Our problem is more profound than simply information. So as I was prepping for this, I remember something that Kathy Keller once asked uh, her students. She's teaching this lesson about Noah, and she says, guys, can you tell me what is it that went into the ark? And one student says, well, people. And another student says, animals. And the other student says, well, food. And all of that stuff is great. But then she stops and says, no, no, no. You're missing something. What, what else went into the ark? And the students could not answer. And this is what she says. Sin. Sin also went into the ark. So as good as as blameless as righteous Noah was, and maybe his family was just as righteous and blameless, uh, and blameless, we know that sin went into the ark and sin came out of the ark, and that's why we have this story of Babel, of the Tower of Babel. Because our issue is not just information. We don't learn just by lessons. We need truly transformation. 
So with that in mind, let's start with Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. Look at what it says. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And this is simply saying that not only people spoke the same languages, but they said the same language, but they had the same values and the same way of thinking, the same worldview. If I were to put it in a different way, now we are in a season, by the way, 100 years after Noah, just 100 years after Noah, in which people not only have the same language, but I could say, say it like this. They had the same love. They loved the same things. They had the same desires. So the question, the most natural question is, what is it that these people loved? Well, the answer is in verse 3, 11, verse 3. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks. And then they burn them, and then they make these bricks. So here we have a group of people that made these bricks, that they used their talents and abilities to accomplish something, who are using what God gave them in the first place to accomplish something. But the reason why I'm highlighting the word let us is because I need you to keep that little phrase in your mind because it's going to tell you, tell you a lot about their hearts. So look at now verse 4. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top into the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we, uh, lest we uh, be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And in this verse alone, there's so many things that we could talk about. So many things that we could talk about. But I only have two hours, so I'm going to go super fast. The first question is this. Why build a city? Well, a city, in that context, and even in this context, maybe, it was a place of protection. It was a place of safety. It was a place of permanent safety. So these people are struggling with Security issues. For some reason, they are struggling with security issues. So the next question we got to ask is, why build a tower? Well, this is interesting. The meaning, the, the root of the word tower means literally this, to be great. And it tells you something about their heart. So these people are using their talents and abilities, the ones that the Lord had given them, but not for God's purposes, not to advance his kingdom, but because they want to make themselves great. And that, that becomes even more clear when at the end of the verse he says, we want to make a name for ourselves. So not only they have security issues, but they also have identity or significant issues. See, they're trying, they think that for some, somehow, the way that the Lord designed them to be is not enough. So they're trying to build this identity to make a name for themselves. But in addition to that, you see that, that they are afraid, which is a fear issue, of being dispersed. So we got a security issue, you have an identity issue, and you have a fear issue. And some of us would say, well, that's not a big deal. You know, we all have security issues, and I would say, amen, Right? Some of us struggle with identity a little bit, and I would say, well, amen. And some of us, it's almost normal to be afraid of something, and I would say, well, amen to that. That is not the problem. The problem is not the emotion. The problem is not the concern. That is not the problem. The problem is not building the city. The problem is not building the tower. That is not the problem. The problem is their heart. And you got to ask the question, how come the problem is their heart? And what I want you to see is that what they're doing is they're playing God. That they think that they can't replace God. 
Doesn't see themselves as demigods. There's a reason why they want to, uh, they're trying to reach heaven. They think that they have the power to be who they want to be, to do what they want to do, that they are the source of their own security and identity and, sec- and everything else. The problem is not that they want to make, that they want something great. The problem is they want to make themselves great. And the root of that problem is simply three different, uh, three different words, in my opinion. They have been brainwashed by the spirit of autonomy, independence, and self-sufficiency. That was their problem. They thought that they could be autonomous people, independent people from God, and self-sufficient. I can make myself great. I am the source of my own security. I could be what I want to be. I can accomplish what I want to accomplish. Now, you, you, somebody, somebody may say, well, Hannibal, it seems like if you're doing AC Jesus, you're bringing your own concept into the Bible. And I would say, no, 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 no. There are actually three different hints in the text that points to this reality. The first example, the first reason why I know that that's the case, that's their heart, is because of the, of the little word I asked you to remember. Let us. Have you ever heard that phrase before? Isn't that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2? Isn't that the very phrase that God used when he was creating the heavens and the earth? Let us make heaven and earth. Let us make human beings in our image. Let us. And you, you can see that these people, right from the beginning, somehow, they thought that they could be like God. Let us. That's the first hint. Second hint, we find it with the word tower. And as I mentioned before, the fact that they want to build that tower that will reach heaven is also an indicative that they think that they could be in the place of God. Isn't that, wasn't that the same heart of the devil? I could be God. And the third thing that we see in the text is where the word dispersed. Now, this is interesting because at at a superficial level, surface level, it doesn't seem like a big issue. Unless you remember one thing that God told Adam and Eve and told Noah. You remember that? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Why is it that these people don't want to do it? See, because once you buy into the idea, if you have been intoxicated of the idea of autonomy uh, and independence of self-sufficiency, God's plans are no longer your plans. It's about me doing what I want to do. Why do I care what God wants for me or from me? I could build my own destiny. This is the secular age. I can be who I want to be. I could be whatever I feel to be. Nobody tells me what to do even God, I get to choose and be who I want to be. Isn't that the spirit of this age? See, the stuff that we're going as a culture, that's not new. That was already there in the Tower of Babel. And the spirit of autonomy and the spirit of independence and the spirit of self-sufficiency. This is the crazy thing, that if that is true and it is, then that not only affects our view of God, not only that affects the view, our view of ourselves, but it also affects our view of others. 
which is a pattern that we see all throughout the scripture. If you were uh, with us when, when we talked about this, you may remember that when, when I was teaching about God calling people to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, I call that, the theological term for that is the cultural mandate, right? It's for us to bring culture, create culture for it, uh, bring truth and justice and beauty and all these things for the glory of God and the well-being of others. That is a cultural mandate. God gives things for the well-being of others. So we were created not just to be a blessing to ourselves, and we'll talk about that later, but also to be a blessing to others. So this is the problem with the secular mentality, which I think was the problem back then. As much as secular people, so listen, if you're secular, you're here, please keep seeking and keep asking questions. What I want to challenge you, though, is I want you to ask the question, if you have embraced or you have any influence, even as Christians, with this secular mentality in which we think that we are self-sufficient and independent and we have autonomy, right? That's why everyone talks about freedom, by the way, because we are bought into the idea that we are autonomous people. So if we have bought into that, I want to make the argument that as much as you want to love people and serve people and do other things for people, you have no foundational beliefs to prove that. You have no foundational beliefs to prove that. Because if you have bought or have been influenced by the autonomy, independence, and self-sufficiency, the only person that really matters to us is us. And with that then... There's other consequences. Not only we forget that we fully depend on God, it's enough, church, but that we also need other people. That's the thing with this. Once God is out of the picture, with God out of the picture, all the humanity is also part of the picture. Not only I am created for the well-being of others, but others are being created for my well-being. And this is the struggle with the secular mentality today. So if this is the message we hear in movies, we see in literature, we sing in songs, we do all of that stuff, that we are the best, that we are awesome, that I don't need anybody. Have you ever gone to Target to the baby section in which there's a little t-shirt that says, you are awesome? What, what do you think that means? So this is the ramifications of that. If you're awesome, if you're independent, if you're self-sufficient, if you don't need God or you don't need anybody, why would you even care about people in your life? That's the crazy thought. And if you don't need anybody in your life, then... And this is the problem with secular, ment secular mentality today. Then you are doomed to loneliness and isolation. So I don't know if you follow some of the cultural stuff that is happening. But I mean, I just invite you to see how many books have been written about isolation. It's crazy the amount of studies that have been done. And how lonely people are, especially in this part of the world. Like it seems like if the more technology we have. The more accomplishments we have, the more money we have, the, more, the bigger houses and bigger cars and everything bigger we have, the more isolated we have become. 
So here you got a group of sociologists talking about, well, we got we to gotta think of technology in different terms. And I would say, well, yeah, amen. Well, you got to work less and then enjoy life more. And I would say, yeah, amen. But that is not going to solve the problem. It'll be the hamburger uh, commercial. The problem in our heart, the problem with the secular mentality, the problem with humanity is not just technology, it's not work, it's not business, it's, not, it's our heart. Even as Christians, we have bought into the idea that we are we're autonomous people, that we are independent people, that we are self-sufficient. And one of the ways in which you see it is how you relate to other people and how much you allow other people to relate to you. Isn't that crazy? Now, now all secular people are freaking out. And even secular people are now saying, man, we got to do something. People have forgotten that we were created or designed for relationships. One of those examples, there's a psychologist, um, Dr. Tronic. Um, is a, I believe he's a child psychologist. And he did this study called the Tronic's, uh, the Tronic's Still Face Experiment. It's super interesting what he, what he finds. And basically... He is studying the behavior of babies since the very moment they're born and as they grow. So there's a video going around in which you have this baby, maybe like age one, maybe, six months maybe, looking at the mom. And the mother is doing all these beautiful faces, right? And she's being super cute and he's being super cute and everyone is super cute in that video. But then she stops and she has... Still face. And you could see how this baby starts to be transformed because he can see the affection he needs. And he starts crying out and trying to get her attention, and the mom is just looking at him. And the whole study is to prove that we need people and that people need us by divine design. By divine design. Of course, as a, as a secular psychologist, he's thinking of solutions. And for me, as a pastor, the solution goes back to us understanding that we are not autonomous, that we are not independent, that we are not self-sufficient. That we were created first and foremost to depend on God. And second, believe it or not, to depend on others. You know what's crazy about this? There are two extremes. We're going to call these the hyper-traditional people. And I'm going to call these the hyper-modern people. To use extremes. Both people would say, we don't need anybody. But that is not true. If you are a hyper-traditional person, you really care about what your family, your heritage, your ethnicity, your group says. Sometimes so much that you sacrifice what God says about you for what they say about you. That will be the traditional group. So they do care. But then the hyper-modern people, they will say, I don't need anybody. I don't, I don't need people's opinions. That is not true. Because even though you try to say that you don't need anybody, you're still looking around to see who's looking at you when you're doing something. Why do you think that social media is so popular? How many of you guys got social media? Really quick, please raise your hand. How many of you guys post something and then you go back to see who liked it? Because we do care. 
And you know why we do care? Because we are like that by design. We're supposed to care what God thinks of us because we are not independent. We are not self-sufficient. And we're supposed to care about at least some people think about us because we are not independent. We are not self-sufficient. Can you imagine what would happen to me if I said to my wife, I don't need your opinion? I know, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> so just like in the story of Noah, we have God looking at the reality of his creation and doing what he has to do in order to stop people from self-destruction. So whenever you think about the judgments of God, you have to see them that way. Is what is it that God is doing from, to keep people from self-destruction? Verse 5, verse 6. This is what God says. Behold, they are one people and they have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they purpose, that they purpose to do will not be impossible for them. That's another crazy verse in the Bible, you know? Think about it. This is God saying, these people are so intoxicated with this false idea of autonomy and self-dependence and independence, self-sufficiency and independence. They have been so affected by their own sin that nothing they set their minds into will stop them. Like, they're, they're unstoppable. You know what's the crazy thing about that verse? It's the same verse I read to you at the beginning. That Job applied to God. Now God is applying to sinful people. The same thing that God said about himself. I could do whatever I want and nothing can stop me. God says the same thing about sinful people. Unless I do something, nothing will stop them. Tell me if that is not an evidence of God's grace. So please stop believing that you are good. Man, I must stop believing that I'm good. Because it's only when I see the depravity of my heart, the reality of my heart, that I understand that unless God does something, my sin is unstoppable. So we continue to read in the text, and remember for verses 7 and 9, we didn't print 9, but 7, seven and 8, you see that God comes down, and he brings confusion, and now they cannot understand each other, and now they're dispersed. And they stop building the city and they still building this tower. And then he gives them the name Babel, which means confused. Now, if we stop the narrative there, then we say, well, then God fixed part of the problem. You know, these people think that they're autonomous, that they're self-sufficient, that they're independent. So now did this thing and now he fixed the problem. But if you have to remember that the, the biblical mandate is not just for us not to do wrong things, but to do the right thing. And what God had commanded humanity to do was to fulfill the great the cultural mandate. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But because God is a God that cannot be stopped, not only he's going to fix the, the Bible problem, but now he's going to do something to continue to fulfill his purposes. And this is where the story of Abraham comes in. Point number two, the great nation. 
And this is super ironic to me, at least to me. When you look at this story, you see a group of people that are seeking for greatness. And God takes their greatness away. And now we have a man that is not looking for greatness. And God promised him that he's going to make him great. So look at with me, chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And notice that right from the beginning, we can compare and contrast the Tower of Babel, the people in the Tower of Babel, and Abraham. You could compare and contrast both of them. And you're going to see how they live by different values, with a different worldview, and with a different heart, different love, different desire. So on one end, the, the people at Babel did not want to be dispersed. And here we have God calling Abraham to go. You still with me? On one end, we see the Tower of Babel, uh, a, a bunch of people trying to build a city. And here we have God call Abraham to leave his country, to leave his security. On one end, we got the Tower of Babel, uh, trying to build their own security and identity and dealing with their own fears. And here on the other end, we have God calling Abraham to leave his kindred. You know what that means? His pedigree, his fame, his family, his reputation. To leave his father's house, the security of his father's house, which is completely countercultural, and he makes it even more crazy that he tells them to a land that I will show you. You know how crazy that is? Leave everything you are. Leave your reputation, leave your career, leave your job, leave your money, leave everything you have. By the way, I will let you know where you're going to go later on. That's a crazy call, especially for American people. Because we are part of a society that has taught us that we make a move when the plan is secure. Now, I know it's personal, and don't worry, I'm going to get more personal in a second. That, that's a call. That, that's what it means to live by faith. Actually, that is the way we abandon our autonomy and our independence and self-sufficiency. Is when we trust the character of God more than his plan, if you will. Actually, it is when we trust the character of God so we can see his plan. You know, John Calvin, in his commentary of this passage, he says that God is commanding Abraham to leave everything behind. It's almost like if he's calling him to go forth with, his clo with, with closed eyes because that will be the only way Abraham would know that he had given himself completely to God. You see how these are two different spirits, two different mentalities, two different worldviews. And the reason why I mention us as Americans, and of course I'm including myself there, is because really we... Whether you see it or not, I, and this is my invitation for us as a church, that we have been infected by this idea. You want me to get more personal? Okay, you, you asked for it. Why do we worry so much about our future? Is it wrong to care about our future? Of course not. We, we got to be good stewards, man. We got we to think about that stuff. But if God is the God of our future, and he is, why do you worry so much about your bank account or 
your retirement plan. Be good, be the good stewards, man. But are you being afraid for what, what will happen in the future? You want me to get more personal? Okay, you asked for it. Why do you care so much about the future of your children? Is it our God or God of covenants? Is it our God or God of promises? Hasn't God shown you his faithfulness to the very fact that you are here today? And here, man, I, I tell you, as a pastor, as a person that was a youth pastor and as a teacher, we are, we are part of a culture in which parents are so obsessed with the future of their kids. So obsessed that we're willing to sacrifice the most foundational things like church and church people. For the sake of a career, for the sake of a sport, for the sake of a curriculum, for something that will look good in a college application. That's crazy about that. Your kid might not even make it to any of those things. You want me to get more personal? No, I'm going to stop there. You see, the only people that fight against the spirit of autonomy and self-sufficiency and independence is the people that know how to trust the heart of God regardless if we cannot see the land just yet. Are you still with me? Actually, I'm going to make the argument that when we do that, it's one of the ways in how we become great. That's what God told Abraham in verse 2. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And notice the, the, the different definition of greatness. For the Tower of Babel people, greatness meant I have to be my own people. I got to do my own things. I got to conquer my own things. I am the source of my security and significance and satisfaction. I am the person that I need. And here we have a humble man that lost it all, and God says, I'm going to make your name great. But your definition of great, greatness is going to be completely different to Babel's definition of greatness. Your greatness is going to be just this. I am going to bless you so you could be a blessing. That's greatness. I'm going to bless you so you could be a blessing. At the end of the day, God is saying to this man, it's not about you. It's about me, my plans, my future, my people. I will bless you so you could be a blessing. That pattern you find all throughout the Bible. This is the reason why God called Adam to be the first so he could love and serve his wife. This is the reason why he chose the Israelites so they could be a blessing to the nations. This is the reason why when a father would die, the older brother would get a double inheritance so with his inheritance he could serve his family, his, his clan. This is part of the reason why the Lord gives spiritual gifts so you could do, use those gifts for the common good, the blessing of other people. This is the reason why God calls spiritual leaders. Not to be served, but to serve. This principle of being blessed to be a blessing is all throughout the scriptures. And that is the right definition of greatness. If you want to pursue greatness, learn how to depend on God. Die to yourself. Know that you are not independent, that you are not self-sufficient, and that the very little things we have are given to you for the blessing of others. That's greatness. You know, I heard once a pastor that in his tombs, 
he says, he says something about along the lines of when I die, my life, I just want to preach the gospel. In my life, I want to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. And I remember that, reading that, and I'm thinking, I don't want that. I want to preach the gospel. Amen. I don't want to be forgotten. You know why this struggle, struggle for me in my heart? Because I forget that the very blessings I have are not mine. It's to be a blessing to others. So, this is the final question. That God actually accomplished his purposes for Abraham? Did he actually become a man that blessed the nations? And I would say yes, and not yet. Point number three, a great savior. See, part of what we're doing as we read the Bible as one story is that you, you're always going to find how every character in the Bible always points to a greater character, which is the character of Jesus. So look at what it says in verse 3. God says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You know that that promise was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, partly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Because Galatians chapter 3 says that Jesus is the greater Abraham. Another Abraham that had to leave his country and to leave his father. He had to leave he heaven and he had to become a human being. And another greater Abraham that will come and leave everything so he could be a blessing. So you and I could be here to give us all the spiritual ble blessings, says Colossians. The spiritual blessing of being uh, forgiven and sanctified and justified and all those things. Another greater Abraham that will come to build another city, the city of God, the kingdom of God, in which he rescues people that will come also the seeds of Abraham, which is all believers. So we can contribute to what the Lord is doing in this creation, to be a blessing to all the nations, to fulfill the cultural mandate, to use what the Lord has given us to bless other people. But the reason why I said is that it's not yet is because we're not going to see the fulfillment of that blessing until Jesus returns. And this is super interesting, beautiful picture, that when Jesus returns, we actually get to see in Revelations 5 and 7 all the nations being blessed. People from every tribe and language and ethnicity and all these things blessing the Lord together, being washed by the blood of Jesus. And also in Revelations, we see that the great Babel also called in Revelations, Babylon, is finally destroyed. No more sense of autonomy, of independence, and self-sufficiency. You know why that's so important to me? Two things. Number one, it reminds me that the Lord has truly blessed me. So I could be a blessing. So I could contribute to what the Lord is doing. But number two, that I know how the story ends. That one day, the fruit of Jesus' labor and the fruit of our labor will be completely fulfilled. Can you imagine that day? Aren't you craving that day? This is when I pray Jesus returns. Please return and make all things new. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we are grateful that we get to be part of this great story. That you are the God of restoration. That you are the God that transforms. That you are the God that is unstoppable. That you are the God that will accomplish your purposes. Please make us people that participate in that. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And we all say, now during this Lent of, during this sense of Lent, we, we want to take the time to consecrate ourselves. If you have been, if you were here with us last week, you may remember that we talked about this season of consecration. What's interesting about the word consecration is that it's a, a similar word to the word to be holy. See, there's two definitions for the word holy. One is in the Old Testament. Actually, both in the Old Testament and New Testament. But the idea is that holy means to be completely sinless, without struggles, without anything. And what I would say is only God is like that. And that's what we're going to be once Jesus returns. But there's another definition of holiness, which is to be set apart. To be set free from something for something. And this goes back to the concept of being blessed to be a blessing. See, in Jesus Christ, because of his life, death, and resurrection, we were blessed. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you have been forgiven and accepted and redeemed. You have been completely transformed. You are no longer the same person if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You have been set free from something. But you are also commissioned to be a blessing for something. And it's a time of consecration. That's why we must celebrate communion. This is a reminder of the praise that was paid for our holiness. This is the price that was paid for us to be set free from something for something. So today what we want to do, instead of having a time of reflection... We want to read together a confession and a prayer written by John Wesley. So I'm going to ask you to please uh, read it aloud and read it in unison. Ready? One, two, three, go. Oh, merciful Father. Do we have it? All right, can we have it? We don't have it? Okay, so we're going to skip that prayer, I guess. So let's then, then do something different. I want you to take the time to meditate on what you just heard. Think about the blessings that you already have. And why is it that the Lord gave you those blessings? And think about why is it that the Lord gave you those blessings? So are you being a blessing? And if there's anything that you need to repent of, please do that before we participate in communion.
Now I'm going to ask you to um, please remove the side of the cup where you find the bread. And listen to what Jesus said. The night when he was betrayed, the night when he will be, he will die, when he will become the great Abraham, dying to himself to be a blessing to us. He took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You may participate. Now you may remove the other side of the cup where you find the juice. And Jesus said on the night when he was betrayed, he took the cup and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. You may participate. Heavenly Father, we recognize that it is so easy to get influenced by the spirit of the age. It is so easy to buy into the false idea that we are autonomous and independent and self-sufficient. I pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that just as these elements enter into our system, we may remember what Jesus already did for us, who we are, and why is it that he saved us that we were blessed to be a blessing. Please help us live according to your design. And we pray for this in the name of Jesus. And we all say, 